Hey guys, welcome back to the AltMed podcast. Uh, Andrew Dowling here. If you are getting something out of listening to these podcasts, which we hope you are, please remember to hit like and subscribe. Alrighty, today's episode. So Mitch Kurtz is with me as always, my co-host. And Howdy. G'day, Mitch. Looking, uh, looking groomed, actually. Yeah, um, for the first time. Uh, <laughs> and... We are delighted to have on the show today, Dr. Lawrence Kemp. Uh, Dr. Kemp is head of medical at Can I Help in Brisbane and is a GP. Um, great to have you with us, Lawrence. No, thanks very much for having me. Excellent. It's absolute well, pleasure. I think, I think as always, we uh, will start with a little bit on your um, background and how you found yourself meandering into the cannabis space, like so many doctors are starting to, to, to move over. So we'd love to just get a little bit um, on your, your history to date. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I am, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a GP by background. I, I trained in the UK and I, I worked there as a GP for about uh, 10 years or so. Um, I uh, moved over to, to Brisbane along with my family in uh, 2018. Um, and I think the, the kind of interesting thing was that the, the UK medicinal cannabis industry is is a long way behind uh, Australia. So, you know, at the time I left, um, I think there were literally just one or two patients in the entire United Kingdom who'd been approved uh, to use medical cannabis products. And those were extremely specialist um, indications. So because a GP, basically, I'd had no exposure to this whatsoever um, uh, when I came over to, to Australia. Um, so, I mean, I think what I what I noticed within a few months of, uh, you know, I, I set up as a, a, in a GP clinic in, in a Brisbane suburb, uh, began to build up a, a, a base of patients. And obviously, like most uh, general practitioners, you have your share of patients with with longstanding chronic pain problems, with uh, with with longstanding mental health problems. You know, that, that stuff's very kind of core bread and butter of general practice. Um, and after a while, some of my patients started to ask, you know, what I knew about medical cannabis, what my views are, were on it, and whether it was something I thought they might benefit from. Um, so the, to begin with, I was honest with patients and said, look, I don't know very much about this. Um, it's not something I've had a lot of experience in from my, from my training in the UK. Um, it, it, yeah, it's not something I, I know enough to, to prescribe for you, but I'm, uh, look, I'm very happy to refer you on to, to somebody that does. So I am... Um, first few patients I, I referred out to other uh, cannabis clinics um, and look, I think what's what struck me was that the patients came back and a lot, a lot of them we saw really marked improvements with the with the therapy that they were on you know their, their pain had got better they started to go out more their mobility had improved and I thought was as a doctor I thought this is just something I've got to I've got to learn about um, this is a therapy that really seems to be working uh, for some of these patients and so I you know I set about thinking well I don't want to refer my patients anymore I want to upskill myself so you know I, I do what doctors do I went on some courses I did a bit of reading I uh, you know I, I did some research uh, myself talked to some of the the cannabis companies out there and then you know started making my first tentative steps into into prescribing these medications myself um, I think that, that this was this was two and a bit years ago and I, I think that you know the thing that I found uh, going into this space was that word quickly gets out, and and before I knew it, um, I had a, a stream of patients coming to see me to uh, to access or to to discuss medical cannabis uh, therapy, and it, you know it really things took off in quite a major way. And I got a, 
a couple of other colleagues within my practice um, who were interested and we, we, you know, we built a little bit of a clinic. Uh, and then at the start of this year, we kind of formally started, founded Can I Help as a, as a specialist medical cannabis clinic. Um, so for me, it's been it's been two and a bit years I've been doing this. You know, I've treated well over a thousand patients now and it's become become quite a focus of, uh, of what I do. But as I say, it was really something I fell into by accident. It was something that you know, I had patients that that asked me about it. Um, you know, I saw the improvement that they were they were experiencing. And as a doctor, it was something I was just keen to learn more about. Yeah, amazing. I can imagine that um, maybe some of those first scripts were a bit daunting. We don't actually think very much about that that uh, that first kind of the pathway to become a, a cannabis doctor. But uh, you know that first script that you dished out with is there a little bit of <laughs> I don't know, like nerves or something like that. Yeah, no, I think as, as a doctor, we we use new medications all the time. You know, we yeah. as we, we go to medical school, we're, we're taught and we gain experience with the drugs that exist at that time. But, you know, we, we, new drugs come on the market the whole time, new, new therapeutic products. So um, so I, I guess for me, it wasn't so much I was using a new medicine because, I, you know, there's always a first time you use a new medicine. And, you, you know, as a doctor, you just make sure you, you know enough about it mm. to, to be using it safely and appropriately. Mm. I think the the daunting element for me was, you know, about the bureaucracy around it. it was about needing to um, fill out the forms and apply to the TGA, and uh, you know, and all of the additional kind of red tape that comes around using cannabis in Australia. And I, I think that, that that was the thing that made it, you know, made, made it quite daunting as an initial prescription. Um, yeah, I think obviously to to begin with, when you start off, you, you're very conservative in the approach you use, and and you know, after you've treated a few hundreds or, or, or thousands of patients you, you become far more familiar with the products and you're happy to to go in with with larger doses initially for people because you've just got a you know better understanding of the responses you're likely to see with things yeah and that's um that's so true and i think that bureaucracy gets uh, handed down as well the, the 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 issues with that get handed down to the patients as well and they really feel the effects of that and i think it's something that's echoed all the time and probably why you have that stream of patients is the, the access is just so difficult um how do you find you know obviously being in the industry for a while now in in, in australian years it's a bit like dog years in some respects um but after you know two and a half years moving from you know uh, i guess in the early days probably far more bureaucracy than there is now how, how do you find that access piece for the for the patients at the moment i i think the access this is improving. I think there are more and more doctors who are moving into this space and are, and are happy to uh, happy to consider medical cannabis as a treatment. So I think things are definitely on the right track. Um, I still think that you know a lot of doctors are put off by the the additional um, you know bureaucracy around these medications, and I think that's what we've. That's what we try to do at Can I Help is just develop really good systems for doctors and, and good support from, from nurses so that we can we can take doctors that want to move into this space and can really support them through it and take a lot of the the um the, the weight off their shoulders in terms of managing all of the bureaucracy and things that that, that come along with this uh, this type of medicine, unfortunately. Yeah. So I, I've got a just a query around um yeah, for those patients, I know that the the TGA has a sort of a scheme or the authorized prescriber pathway. Um, but for most patients, particularly in those early days, um, but even still to this day, there's a lot of patients who will be the subject of a doctor submitting to the TGA on a per patient basis, yeah. an application under the special access scheme. So I, I'm just curious, you know how 
often sort of maybe this is something that applied more in the early days but did you get some of those applications knocked back and because i imagine some of our audience who might be thinking about having that conversation with their doctor might be going you know or would i be eligible would i qualify what what kind of um what are some of the the tricky parts for you in in kind of providing the tga with a clinical justification for having a patient prescribed cannabis yes i say Personally, I've had very few, if any of them, knocked back. Uh, but I think that the reason for that is I undertake a pretty thorough screening of patients beforehand. And I, and I, I won't even put an application in unless I'm pretty confident that we, we're going to get through that process. Um, within Can I Help, we have, you know, we now have a number of nurses who assist doctors with these, these applications. And the, the, the training that I always give, uh, give the nurses on how to prepare these uh, are with, with the clinical justification. You know, you need to say what, what the issue is that you're treating and, you know, you need to identify an issue that that patient has that will be amenable to treatment with cannabis. Um, you then need to state why it's important. So just give some justification as to the impact it's having on that, that patient's life. Uh, you need to be able to demonstrate, you know, that they have tried some first line therapies and why those therapies either haven't worked or haven't been, haven't been well tolerated. And then you need to just provide quite a clear idea about the treatment plan that you're you're following with this patient, whether you're going to be treating them with a single product or, or, or multiple products in, in, in combination. Um, so I, I think really it's it's about selecting the right the right group of patients. And I find that the the, the vast majority, probably eighty percent of patients that do come and register with our clinic, do uh, do qualify and do meet those criteria. Um, but you know you, you you've got to make sure that you're, you're kind of ticking all the boxes there in order to you know to, to go through the process successfully so I've, I've got a corollary to that is would somebody's fear of side effects of a medicine be a sufficient basis for a clinical justification for cannabis so for example you know i suffer from pain um, I, you know i might um, treat it with um, you know lots of panadol or something actually hopefully not because that's not good but if i was um you know reading about the opioid um problem that, that we seem to have in our society and and some of the really um dangers the, the, the dangers of those drugs to say you know re respiratory systems and the like what what do you think about that as a basis for prescribing someone cannabis just there that patient saying I know I could be prescribed opioids, but I really don't want to be. I just want to actually trial cannabis. How does that go? So, look, um, I, th I think there are some grey areas here, but 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 certainly that's a route I've gone down with a, with a few patients. Um, I think with opiates, you know, what we actually know from a lot of the studies that have been done with opiates is that opiates can be effective for, you know, acute short-term pain. We know that for people with with long-term chronic pain problems that um, opiates are, are, are generally not helpful um, you know they uh, there are issues with uh, with developing tolerance there's issues with developing dependence um, so there's the side effect profile with, with opiates often isn't good uh, as well so uh, I think you've, you've on very reasonable grounds there as a, as a doctor to say actually that you know we know that opiates are not going to be particularly useful um, as, a, as a therapy um, and so that I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't insist that people had tried and failed on opiate therapy before we considered medical cannabis if we're treating long-term long-term pain. You know, I, I would be more keen if if someone's got long-term back pain just to you know to 
say, well, you know, have they had a bit of physiotherapy? Uh, have they, you know, have they tried some other other therapeutic options before before moving into it? But but certainly, use of opiates is is not a prerequisite from 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 my point of view because I, I you know they ever all of the evidence says they don't actually work very well. Mm, that's interesting that you um that I haven't heard of it explained that way before. W- would it be similar um, or that approach rather like not? It's usually what I hear, at least from doctors, is the opiates were causing side effects. But if you're saying that you can just kind of come through with um, seeing a physio or something, I find that very interesting as a first line therapy. I, I, I think what what the TJ want is that you're you can justify you're not using the medical cannabis as a as a first line therapy. So mm. for someone that's been to see me and say, look, I've had a back pain for you know for a number of months. Um, I've tried um, some over-the-counter painkillers. Maybe I've had a bit of ibuprofen and some paracetamol. I've seen a physiotherapist. They've given me some exercises. I've, I've, I've tried doing that. Maybe they've even you know, tried some acupuncture or something like that, and, and, and that isn't working. Then, you know, from my point of view, they, they've tried a number of therapies. They've tried a, you know, a, a couple of licensed uh, drugs for that indication. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't be going down the line of insisting that they need to take you know, need to trial codeine or tramadol or oxycodone or, or something like that, because the core of the evidence points to the fact that those drugs are more likely to be harmful than beneficial. So mm. it's a nod to me in, in insisting someone someone tries a drug that, um, you know, that, 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 that we know there's that there's very little evidence to support its use in those cases. So, so no, I absolutely don't insist people having tried opiates. I find most of my patients have, but 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 it's not not something I would I would I would be insisting. Not a prerequisite. Is what you're saying? Well, does that, that, yeah. yeah. Does that sort of apply as well with things like I'm just thinking benzos and and, and yeah. Some I was going to ask you know, the same thing. Well, yeah. Great minds, Mitch. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I'm I'm just trying to think that sort of um, approach that you've suggested, where a, a first line therapy could be physical therapy. Um, yeah. You know, is it the case that somebody could uh, try, say, seeing a counsellor or a psychologist as a first line therapy for coming in with yeah. depression and then being moved to medical cannabis? Sorry, I know these are very, um, I just know that our, our audience pays be very interested in this because I know pain, anxiety, are some of the, the most frequently um, prescribed conditions with cannabis, as you'd know. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, so I think for for anxiety, for example, then um, certainly psychological therapy and, and uh, uh, cognitive behavioural therapy in particular is recognised as a, as a first-line treatment there. So um, I, I wouldn't insist on having tried benzodiazepines. You know, we, benzodiazepines aren't recommended in treatment of anxiety disorders. They, they, again, you know, similar to opiates with pain, they can give a short-term benefit, but in the long term, they're not particularly useful. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think... I would be looking for patients that tried first line therapies. So, you know, either had some psychological therapy or usually have tried a, an SSRI um, medication um, or uh, potentially, you know, there may be good reasons why they don't want to try that. Maybe they've had side effects with using them in the past or there are other medical conditions that they've got that, that make the, those medications, you know, not, not appropriate for them to use. So I, I guess I, th- I think the, the key point is that, um, I think a lot of clinicians think that cannabis has to be a last resort and you have to have tried everything. Um, and that really isn't the case. It, it just, it, you know, it just means that you have, to, it, it, you can't use it as a first line. So as long as the patients have tried something um, and uh, you know, so you're not using it, you're using it first line, um, then 
I think and you can have a discussion with them about the potential benefits they might get from trying cannabis. Obviously, there's no guarantees, you know, that, that it will work. But I have that open discussion with them about the, the risks and the benefits. Um, but look, I, I think it's, the basic point is you don't have to have tried, you know, every single painkiller, every single antidepressant. Uh, we, we just have to, to be able to kind of justify that we're not we're not rushing into using that as a first line. So what about then that brings me to an interesting point. What about patients that have tried cannabis before? Um, you know, is that something that you see in the clinic? Do you see people that have come in who have already been exposed to cannabis use and said, I'd prefer to maybe try a medical product or I've uh, found relief, but I can't get it. Or, or I'm not sure the different range of scenarios, but I, I would, I would say probably half of the patients that come to our clinic have got some history of cannabis usage, mm. you know, either, either they've tried medical cannabis in the past or they, uh, they've used cannabis that they've obtained on the black market. Um, mm. And, and the car, I think I, I take that into account. You know, if, if somebody um, with anxiety, with an anxiety uh, issue or, with a pain issue is, is tried some street cannabis and they found that it's worked really well for them, then, you know, in many ways that makes me more inclined to prescribe it because, you know, we know that this is likely to be, to be effective. Um, so look, I, I often have, uh, have these open conversations with the, with patients about what they, what they have used and, and build that into their treatment plans and actually affects, affects what you do quite significantly. Um, you know, for patients that have got a history of using, you know, maybe using a cannabis flower on a regular basis, uh, you know, with, with that kind of patient, they're unlikely to benefit in a major way from a low strength oil. You know, you mm. may have to start their treatment with something a little bit stronger. Um, mm. And also, you know, I, th I think one of the main challenges we see in people coming from the clinic, having been using street cannabis is often they don't know very much about where that's come from, what strain it is, what strength it is. Yeah, correct. Um, and so um, sometimes they do, but often they don't. And so it can be a bit of a, uh, of a challenge kind of working out how much of a medical pro uh, um, a product to, to put them on. And look, generally, I find that um, with, a, with a really high quality medical grade product, usually people can get by with about a quarter to a half of the, of the amounts of, uh, of street cannabis that they were using, just as a, as a kind of rough rule of thumb, I've found. Yeah, that's very interesting because, well, two things. People are always telling us, at least, they're, they're kind of scared to go to their doctor because they they have fear. You know, I don't want him to know that I'm using cannabis, even though that's what I want, <laughs> because I don't want them to think I've been doing something illegal, if that makes sense. So it's interesting to to hear that you have so many patients that are that are familiar with it. Um, and then, um, yeah, I think that. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm very interested in is, is the kind of how, to, how you measure the improvements with um, cannabis, because that's something that's still kind of, I mean, we have clinical studies being conducted across the globe and, and, and the emerging, emerging literature around that. But, yeah. um, but, but, you know, as, as a GP on the front line, you know, what, what are you seeing? How is that conducted? How do you get from point A to point B in a way that is somewhat quantifiable? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, you know, obviously we, we, we measure all the time in the questions that we ask the patients and get their subjective, you know, um, views on, you know, how much their sleep's improved, how much their pain's improved. Um, I'm really someone that's, that's quite a big fan of trying to objectively measure these things as much as possible. Um, so we, uh, uh, can I help? Certainly we, uh, 
the, the process our patients follow is they register with our clinic and then all of them have a, a kind of free, no obligation consultation with one of our nurses uh, who goes through a lot of the background and assesses their their eligibility. And our, our nurse then sends out a whole load of questionnaires for that patient mm. to complete. So these are kind of standardised measures, uh, you know, there's questionnaires to measure pain, questionnaires for quality of life, sleep quality, anxiety and depression, that, that kind of thing. Um, and then we repeat those questionnaires at, at regular intervals. So I think the the benefits of that is it, it gives the both the patient and the doctor some objective measures about you know how how they're they you know they're, they're doing, and, and so we can see the the effect that the the medication's having on them. Mm. Um, and you know it also provides us with some quite useful data as a clinic that we can assess the effectiveness of the of, of the treatments that we're using. Um, so one of the things I often find with um, with, with people not not just using cannabis but with using any medication is that they um, they they kind of reset their baseline in their head. So mm. um, you you can have someone whose sleep is absolutely terrible to begin with, um, and then after three months their their sleep's an awful lot better, but they still have a bad night before they speak to you, and you say, look, okay, you know, how are you doing with the sleep? And they say, oh, it's not great, you know, and and. Uh, and then when you get them to do the questionnaire, you can say, well, actually, you know, your score has fallen really quite dramatically since what you're yeah. on at the time. So it, I think it's useful as a tool to help getting patients to reflect on how they're doing and tracking their progress. But yeah, we've, we've, we've got some some quite interesting data on them, you know, on how effective these treatments are in our patients. We we love data. So if there's anything you feel uh, open to share, we would yeah. uh, Look, I love can- to hear it. I can I can certainly give you give you some some little snippets of uh, of that. So I think you know, one of the what one of the main things that we um, probably our biggest indication is is, is chronic pain. Um, so we we use a uh, a score called the Pain Disability Index. So it's basically a, a questionnaire um, with seven different areas, and each area is uh, is scored out of. Uh, uh, out of 10. So uh, a score of zero would be that there's no disability, two would be mild, five would be moderate, and eight would be severe, and kind of 10 would be the, the, the worst possible. So the seven domains are, you know, family and home, recreation, social activity, occupation, sexual behaviour, self-care, and life support activities. And so we get the patients to score in, in all of those. Um, Look, what we see is on average, um, our patients are scoring 43 out of 70 to begin with. So we're talking, you know, in each of those different areas, they're scoring somewhere between, you know, 5.3 and, uh, and 7.3 on average. So, you know, in all of those, we're on the kind of moderate to severe level of disability in, in patients at, uh, at the start. Um, what we see is after three months of treatment, we've we've seen a reduction of about 13 and a half points. So uh, on average, kind of two points across all of those domains. So really quite quite significant. We're bringing people down from, you know, from, from a, an average score where they're on the severe end to where they're kind of under moderate towards mild symptoms on, on average. So I th- you think that that's a, that's a really, really encouraging result. Um, we see that the same thing or, or similar changes with stress, anxiety and depression scores in patients that we're treating for mental health mm-hmm. disturbance. You know, our, um, we use a, a sleep questionnaire um, and, you know, on average, our patients are scoring kind of moderate to severe to begin with. And after three months, they're scoring 
what we call sub-threshold. So, you know, um, below the, the threshold in which you die, clinically diagnose a sleep problem. And we use a, we use a, a, a WHO quality of life questionnaire. And basically we see in all, in all domains of quality of life, whether we're looking at overall quality of life, satisfaction with health, life enjoyment, energy levels, we're seeing consistently an improvement in all of those areas after just three months of therapy. So it's, um, it's really, really encouraging uh, results from, from the point of view of our clinic. Um, yeah, amazing. And I imagine kind of people getting um, several benefits at the one time across, you know, not just isolated pain, but possibly pain and some sleep help. And also if they do have a little bit of anxiety that's yeah. wrapped up and you probably have a multi-pronged kind of approach yeah. there. Absolutely. We, we know that physical health and mental health issues commonly coexist with each other and feed off yeah. each other. So, mm. you know, the, the vast majority of patients with a chronic pain problem will have a, a degree of, uh, of depression going on there. The vast majority of patients with severe anxiety will have a bit of a sleep disorder. And I think that's the nice thing about cannabis medicine is it does often work across across you know multiple domains there so uh, the, the results we've seen so far are, are, are really encouraging and it's really satisfying for me as a as a clinician and as, as somebody that's running this organization that i you know i can see the impact it's having on individual patients day to day in clinic uh, but then to look at all of this aggregated data and see that you know as a clinic at a whole you know we've got several hundred people that are reporting um, better symptoms, you know, better quality of life now than they were three months ago. Uh, I, I just, you know, kind of, I think makes you gives gives you a good feeling as a doctor, to be honest, to to be able to, you know, to to, to measure and, and and look at look at how you're helping people. It's it's great. I um I had a a thought as as you were sort of talking through that that you know someone playing devil's advocate might say, well, you know, that data that you're getting is subjective, qualitative data. Um, you know, can you is there any kind of objective quantitative data? Um, you know, do you have patients that are interested in, say, regularly um, getting blood tests or, or other kinds of tests that can show improvements to particular biomarkers or what, what you might be looking for to, to measure it? Yeah, look, I, I think... Um... I think you're right. We, we're using we're using medicinal cannabis here for symptom management in most of these uh, uh, in most of these cases. You know that there, there is no biomarker that can um, measure someone's you know someone's pain response. Um, there's no biomarker that can reliably measure you know someone's sleep. So um, yeah, look, I, I think you know if, you, if you're developing a drug for diabetes, you've got established biomarkers. But when you're looking at pain and anxiety and depression and stuff, actually questionnaires is 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 the best way that you can you can access it. Um, and I, I think you know the, the the way that we score them is as quantitative as and as reliable as we can. You know, we didn't make up these questionnaires. We we took the the kind of gold standard measures that are they're available scientifically and, and incorporated them into our clinic. Um, Look, I think the, the major criticism of, of what we're doing that I hear from people is that it's a very biased group of people. You know, there are these are people that sought out cannabis treatment. Um, so clearly they they obviously believed in it or were, were, were you know open minded enough to want to explore it to begin with. Uh, and then, you know, as you'd imagine, it's you know, you can't get everyone to complete a questionnaire um, even to begin with. But then then to complete questionnaires every three months, uh, you need quite motivated patients to, to do that. So. <laughs> That we, we, we are self-selecting a group of people who are really into this um, and, and really feel the benefit from it. And I think that, 
you know that, that that's probably the the major criticism of the, of the data we've got from a scientific standpoint um, and look i i accept that and i think my colleagues in academic medicine um you know i, I think it would be would be really good to be able to do more clinical trials uh you know with cannabis where we mm. we give people placebos and we uh, and we and we we measure these things in a, in, a, in a more reliable controlled environment but uh you know i think from the point of view of what we're doing as a clinic we're, we're doing the best we can so to monitor how our patients are doing and and contribute a little bit to the uh, to the evidence base behind all of this i guess i guess on the flip side of that though the the like the, the demand, the, the, the sheer number of people that are interested, um, to me, speaks volumes about the space. Uh, it's not, it doesn't feel fringe anymore to me. Um, uh, it might still technically be considered that, at least in Australia, but it, it definitely doesn't seem to have the same level of stigma or taboo that, that cannabis once did. Um, you know, in, in the medical circles, it's still kind of on its way out, but I, I think especially the recreational side, when you think about North America and that influence across the globe, especially in the West, uh, it just seems to be something that is, is becoming less and less of a big deal, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think you're right. I think from the, the kind of medical perspective, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing increased numbers of patients being prescribed this all the time. We're seeing increasing number of doctors kind of moving into this space. Um, I still think in terms of GPs, it's only about 5% of general mm. practitioners who have got any prescribing experience. And look, I, I, I still think we're not completely there. Um, you know, I, I found it I found it pretty difficult to, um, you know, when I set up Can I Help, you know, one of the things I set up to do was to rent some space within a GP surgery where I could see patients face to face because, you know, I'm a big believer in seeing seeing patients in the flesh where you, where you can rather than doing everything purely by by telehealth um and it was it was actually it was quite difficult to to find space uh, to rent you know i'd approach practices and i'd say look i'm looking to to rent some space and they say oh yeah that, that that should be fine we've got a spare room on on whatever day of the week it was and then um, you know then they come back to you and say yeah sorry we, we you know we we, we, can, we can't have you and I, I think a lot of it was the was the worries about it being a cannabis clinic and about attracting, uh, you know, patients that would be disruptive to the general running of the surgery and and things like that. So I, th- I think there is a, there is a little bit of a, a bit of a stigma there and, and still a little bit of prejudice within the profession. But I, I think it's uh, we're we, we're seeing we're we're moving quite a lot in the right direction there. So so what would be your message to a doctor thinking about moving to the space or not sure or on the fence or, you, you know, ha- how how would you not that you're trying to, but convince a doctor to get into the space. Are you, are you suggesting Lawrence is a, a sort of a gateway doctor? <laughs> gateway doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I am. Well, can he can he help? Yeah, look, I mean that that's that's quite a lot of what we do. To be honest, I I, I talk to a lot of doctors all the time. You know, we we give educational talks. I share some of the data. Um, but I, I think you know, often the, the the best thing for a doctor is you know if they're not sure about it, then uh, you know why, why not if they're, if they're not sure about doing it themselves, then why not follow the path that I did? You know, refer them to begin with to a doctor that does know about it, and but but then follow them up and and see the benefit for yourself. Um, and that's what convinced me to move into the space. I sent you know two or three patients to uh, uh, patients that I've been making very little progress with. Um, I sent them to a medicinal cannabis clinic and I followed them up myself and I observed the improvement. And, and that was what convinced me. And I, yeah. I think that if you, 
I think you go on a, a journey as a doctor there from, from not knowing anything about it to maybe being something you're a little bit sceptical of. Um, I think often it's a big leap to go from, from that position of being quite sceptical into actively prescribing it yourself. And I, and I think actually that, that that's where clinics like ours fit in. You know, you can pass the patient to us. We will, uh, we will assess them very, very thoroughly. We will prescribe for them appropriately. We will monitor them, but we'll involve you in the care as well. Um, mm. We'll let you know what we're doing and, and we're very happy to, to liaise with you and you can see the results for yourself. And then I think often that, that's probably the best way to, you know, to get doctors to think, well, you know, maybe I should be, should be getting a bit more involved with this. Mm. And what, what are your kind of product tendencies, not obviously labeling any brands or anything like that, but the types of products or, you know, the, the combinations that you like to put together, is there, you know, I heard you speaking about the, 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 the plan to, that you would propose to the TGA for that specific patient might involve uh, several different uh, cannabis treatments. How, how does that look usually look from your side? Like it's really, really individualized and it, it depends on the, on the symptoms the patient's having. It depends a lot on their previous cannabis experience. Um, so I, I'm not somebody that, um, that follows a recipe with everyone. You know, I don't insist on starting on a CBD oil and then, you know, moving up to a THC oil and then introducing a flower. You know, if, if somebody I feel needs a, needs a THC flower straight away, we, we, we go straight in with that so the the treatment plans i put together are very very individualized to you know to what that patient needs um i, I think you know generally i guess there's a few rules of thumb I, I i like people to be on balanced products where possible so if, if they're you know i like them to be having both cbd and thc within their treatment regime because i think that the the two of them work well together the uh often the combination reduces the side effects and increases the therapeutic benefits. So I, I do like to go for, for kind of balanced regimes wherever possible. Um, but, you know, in terms of the products I go for and the, and the, and the routes that we go for and how we put it together, it's, uh, you know, it, it really, it, it's very kind of bespoke to, you know, to the needs of that patient and, you know, whether they drive, what they do for a job, um, you know, uh, when, when about the day their symptoms the worst. And like that, that's what I enjoy about it as a doctor. It's not, you know, this is your standard dose, take one of these three times a day. It's very, very much more nuanced and personalised uh, than that and really working in partnership with your, with your, with your patient. And I think that's a, that's a lovely way to practice medicine. And, uh, you know, I think I get, I get a lot of professional satisfaction just you know, sitting down with patients and having these discussions and, and working out plans together does sound very nice actually i'm just curious um thinking about uh the subjective thing we were talking about before where you know pain and, and sleep and anxiety are somewhat subjective what what about conditions that are potentially less subjective say neurological disorders things like that where you can actually see whether somebody has say parkinson's and, and is in the middle of shaking versus not i mean surely that has that's a little bit more visceral. You can kind of see that, um, you know, in the flesh, if that makes sense. Does, does that have a different impact? Do you see that? Is that something you come across? Yeah, I think that there are certainly objective things you can observe about patients on, on treatment. So, so you're right with, with Parkinson's, you may see a, a reduce in the stiffness, a reduce in, you know, that they, their, their, their muscles and their body maybe uh, overcome some of that rigidity. And that's something that you can detect when you examine a patient as well. Um, but even, you know, treating patients with, with, with chronic pain problems, sometimes you just see them walk into the consult room 
you know, and they're, mm. they're less stiff than they were before, and they're, you know, and they're they're walking, or the, you know, the limp that they've had has improved, and their mobility has improved. So, look, I, I think with all of these things, you know, although we're often getting the patients to report on their subjective experience of things, that there's a lot of stuff that you can you know, that you, you, you can observe from a, from a clinical perspective, um, you know, as well when you examine patients. So, look, I, I think you're right. Um, diseases, um, neurological diseases, uh, you know, particularly things like Parkinson's and, and, and stuff, and, and epilepsy as well, you know, you can measure seizure frequency usually very reliably because a seizure is normally a fairly clinically evident event so so there, there are yeah. things you can that you, you can you can measure in a, in a you know slightly yeah. more exact way um uh but but yeah i i kind of also feel that the, the patient's lived experience of, of everything is is just as important as as that and i think we um you i guess we have a tendency in measure in in, um, in medicine and science generally to um to prefer stuff that we can really objectively measure um because it you know just makes the, the research easier and um uh, and you know, I think that there's arguments for that. But but what I mean, kind of what I've always the mantra I've always followed, what I was always taught at medical school is, you know, measure what you value rather than value what you measure. Um, and you know, if if quality of life is is the main thing that you're valuing, then come and find a way to to try and measure that rather than measuring a, a biomarker which you can measure really accurately. But you know, but may may have uh, be of little clinical importance to to the patient. So yeah, that's great. Lawrence, I've heard it described even just, yeah, people who get something out of medical cannabis just describe even just having like more positive interactions with their family and, and the little things like that that, you know, obviously can't be objectively yeah. measured, but, you know, that just a whole um, quality of life improvement. I've got one last question for you, just since we've got the pleasure of having a, a doctor on the show. I just wanted to know in terms of um, dosing, so for um, those two common conditions we've been discussing pain and, and depression slash anxiety. Is it usual that, you know, as a GP that you would sort of tell your patient to take medical cannabis as and when symptoms are at their worst during the day, or is there a more preventative approach that, that you can um, speak to from your clinical experience? So I think this is where the different forms of the medication come in. Okay. So um, generally with, with oils and with, with oral products, um, you know, we know that they're going to take an hour or two to get to work and they're going to hang around in the system a lot longer. So with, uh, with, with oil products, I'm generally uh, someone that would advocate regular, regular dosing for those at specific times of the day, you know, obviously dependent on, on, on the patient's lifestyle and what they're doing. Um, for fast acting products and particularly, you know, thinking of, uh, of inhaled flowers there where, where you can get a therapeutic effect within, within a few minutes, they do lend themselves uh, much better to that kind of on-demand dosing for, you know, when the anxiety is particularly bad or when they're having a PTSD related flashback or, or when the pain suddenly flares up. Um, so I think you've got different products there for, for, for different niches uh, within that. And, um, Generally, I, I think that the uh, the longer acting ones lend themselves more towards kind of regular preventative dosing, and that the fast acting uh, things, and particularly the inhale flowers, uh, are much more useful as that kind of on demand type type product. No, that's great. Um, well, we have uh, you've been very generous with your time because we know how busy you are, Lawrence. So thank you so much, and yeah, we. Um, We've just really enjoyed um, unpacking a bit of this and hopefully um, it's of value to, to our audience as well. But um, yeah, until we speak again, 
take care. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thanks, Lauren.